I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hello, I'm Erica Dakin-Kirby, guest host of today's Defining Moments podcast. I'm a professor of communication studies and the AF Jacobson Chair in Communication at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, where I teach classes on organizational communication and communicating social justice. I'm thrilled to be here today in the role of host. Today, I am joined by two guests. My first guest is my coworker and dear friend, Dr. Chad McBride. Chad grew up in Texas and earned his BA and MA from TCU and his PhD from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He is professor and chair of communication studies at Creighton University, where he has been for 17 years. Professionally, Chad studies communication within personal relationships and families, often using face work and communication privacy management as theoretical frameworks. His most recent line of scholarly work has been on work spouses. He is past president of the Central States Communication Association, as well as the Organization for the Study of Communication, Language, and Gender, where just last week, he also received the organization's highest honor of being inducted into the Wise Women's Council. His work has been published in a variety of journals, and together we have co-edited two editions of the book, Gender Actualized, Cases in Communicatively Constructing Realities. Chad lives in Omaha with his husband, Alan, their four-year-old son, Jackson, and their cats, Zeb, Zuri, and Lucky. My second guest is another friend. Dr. Kathy Miller. Kathy grew up in Michigan and earned her BA and MA from Michigan State University and her PhD from the University of Southern California. In her three-decade career as a professor, she taught, mentored, and conducted research in the areas of organizational, family, and health communication. She is the author of scores of journal articles, several textbooks, and the nonfiction book, War Makes Men of Boys, a Soldier's World War II. Kathy has now declared herself a recovering academic, and she writes historical fiction for adults and young adults, and narrative nonfiction for kids of all ages. Kathy lives in Plymouth, Minnesota, with two sister cats, Molly and Frigley. When she's not writing or reading, she's playing the piano, cross-stitching, trying to craft the perfect bourbon cocktail, or proud mama-ing the efforts of her daughter, Kalina. I will be talking with Chad about his diagnosis with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, commonly referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease, how that has impacted his life and his projects of legacy leaving and memoir writing. Kathy has been assisting him in the process of writing his memoir and has written extensively about her own family and legacy, so she is knowledgeable about the process of bringing memory and narrative together. I'm so excited to hear from both of them. But before we move into our conversation, just a bit more information about ALS for context. ALS is a rapidly progressive, invariably fatal neurological disease that attacks the nerve cells responsible for controlling voluntary muscles. As of today, the cause of ALS is unknown. There are no known preventative measures and there is no recognized cure. A few statistics. About 30,000 people nationwide suffer from ALS. It strikes nearly 5,600 people in the United States each year. Symptoms can include twitching, cramping, or stiffness of muscles, muscle weakness affecting an arm or leg, slurred and nasal speech, or difficulty chewing or swallowing. The disease most commonly strikes people between 40 and 60 years of age but young adults and older individuals can also develop the disease. The average lifespan after diagnosis is two to five years. This disease crosses all ethnic, racial, and socioeconomic boundaries. 
men are affected more than women. And because ALS affects only motor neurons, the disease does not impair a person's mind, personality, intelligence, or memory. But eventually all muscles under voluntary control are affected. Now that I have provided that background, one more thing before we start our discussion. Today's podcast is very personal for all of us. I would never apologize for talking through tears as a thinking and feeling human being, but I want to note that might be the case for any one of us. With that said, Chad, let's just start with having you talk about anything you want our listeners to know about learning about your diagnosis with ALS. Yeah, so last fall, I uh, was having some concerning symptoms. Uh, some of the ones that you mentioned, <clears throat> my uh, legs would sometimes bounce involuntarily while I was at rest. I had mu weird muscle twitches. Um, and generalized weakness <clears throat> that I noticed in uh, my legs and arms. Um, and so I went to the doctor uh, and she sent me to a neurologist. Uh, one of the hard things about ALS is there is no test that is definitive that uh, tells you definitely you have it. And so the doctors have to go through a whole battery of tests to rule out anything else that might be going on. So I saw my first neurologist in early January and started that testing process and then got a second opinion on January 31st. And was then officially diagnosed uh, and started treatment soon after that. Thank you. Your diagnosis, like you said, was um, in January. Can you tell us about how your life has changed since then, Chad? Yeah, quite a bit. So when I was diagnosed, I was having uh, somewhat of a hard time walking. And when I was outside of the house, I would hold on to my husband's arm. Um, but otherwise, um, I could do most things. Uh, starting in February, I had uh, some more serious falls. And um, started using a walker. Um, since then, I've had a lot more issues. <coughs> One of the things with ALS is uh, you have to keep your uh, muscles as lumber and mobile as possible, which is harder in a pandemic when you can't leave the house. Uh, so I'm not sure if, you know, how much of my pro progression is natural and would be happening anyways, or how much of it is uh, because I'm stuck. Uh, you know, in my house most of the time. Um, but since then, I've uh, upgraded to a different walker. Um, I can't do many things on my own, including sometimes feeding myself. I uh, definitely can't get myself dressed. Uh, sometimes have to have help with things like brushing my teeth. Um, so lots of uh, progression and additional assistance uh, that I, I require since the diagnosis. Thanks for sharing all that, Chad. And I will just say, as one of Chad's best friends, um, we're all very angry about COVID in the middle of this because we feel quite robbed of time with him. So, Chad, since your diagnosis, you have been very mindful of ensuring that Jackson will know you even after you're gone. And Kathy has been helping in that process. I know that even as one of your closest friends, I have sometimes mixed up the ideas that you are quote unquote legacy leaving and that you are quote unquote memory, memoir writing. 
Kathy, as a writer, can you first explain the difference between the two before we discuss them? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, We can distinguish memoir writing and legacy leaving in a couple of ways. Uh, One is in terms of audience for the writing. Uh, For legacy leaving, the audience, at least initially, tends to be friends and family, those who know you, those you're very close to, those you want to leave something to, as sort of uh, implied by the, the term legacy. Versus with a memoir, you usually have a wider audience uh, of the reading public, people who you think might be interested in your story, but who you don't personally know. A second way that can be distinguished is in terms of form, um, where memoir has a pretty narrow narrative form. Usually you're telling a specific story. So when you see memoirs on the bookshelf, They usually aren't memoirs of a whole life. They are memoirs of an experience. So a memoir of adoption or of uh, eating disorders or something like that. Whereas with legacy leaving, the form can vary widely. It's usually trying to leave perhaps a whole story of your life in an oral history Or it could be things like leaving notes and cards to people you love or recording video messages for those you love or reading stories or singing songs, whatever kind of message you want to live past you and that you want the people you love to be able to appreciate. Thank you so much, Kathy. So let's dive a little deeper then into legacy leaving, like Kathy said, for that smaller audience that can vary in form. What has that process been looking like so far, Chad? One of the hardest parts of the diagnosis for me was, I mean, obviously it's a traumatic and devastating diagnosis for anyone, but I uh, feel like the first thing that I thought of beyond my husband and friends and colleagues was having a young son uh, and having Jackson make sure that he uh, knew me and remembered remembered me when I wasn't here. (laughs) And also when I couldn't speak or... um, wasn't able to say things to him that I wanted to while I was still here, that I wanted to have those things. So even before I knew the term legacy leaving, one of the first things I started doing was uh, trying to think about what books or experiences that I wanted to have with him (coughs) or planned on having that I couldn't anymore at this point. So one of the first things I did was record uh, myself reading Charlotte's Web. So I'm a big reader and Charlotte's Web was one of, or my first chapter book that I read as a kid. And it deeply impacted me and I remember crying and um, was looking forward to sharing that experience with my son. And so I recorded that. And um, as part of uh, my ALS clinic, they also introduced me to the ideas of voice banking and message banking. So voice banking is recording my voice, uh, saying a bunch of different random sentences so that when I am unable to speak, a computer could speak for me and it would kind of sound like my voice. Uh, So I've done that uh, some. Um, The other thing they introduced was the idea of message banking. So specific messages that I would want to say in my own voice, again, when I'm here but can't I use my vocal cords. So I've recorded uh, things like I love you, um, 
different good night messages, good morning messages. Uh, and I've talked, I've met some other people uh, with ALS online through social media and gotten really good ideas of messages either that they've recorded or that they wish they would <laughs> would have recorded. So I've done things like sing happy birthday to my son uh, and to my husband. So different messages like that. Since then, um, I have connected with a new therapist who specializes in what I call, she wouldn't use this term, but I call shitty diagnoses. So she works with people who uh, have ALS and uh, other degenerative diseases like MS or Parkinson's. Um, And she was the first that really kind of brought legacy leaving to my attention. So I, you know, I, I recognize that many of the things that I was doing and wanting to do were part of that project. Um, the other thing that I've done since then, beyond the memoir writing or just writing down story <coughs> for Jackson and recording them, is uh, I've asked friends and colleagues to also share stories with me. And I thought as a social scientist and a communication professor, I recognize that our reality is socially constructed. So anything that I would uh, compile or put together would be from my perspective uh, for Jackson or for whoever else wanted to hear them. And so, Um, You know, that's worthwhile. But I also thought, you know, (laughs) I have been really lucky to have a lot of relationships in my life um, from Texas and from various jobs. and, And Alan and Jackson wouldn't necessarily get to meet those people or know them. And so I wanted them to have the opportunity to share any stories or memories. Um, So that's been an emotional process for me. Uh, It's been good to reminisce and reconnect with people. Um, There's been lots of tears. Um, And to be honest, I don't know if or when (laughs) Jackson or others will want to, (laughs) to read or Uh, hear any of these stories, but I want them there in case they ever do. Um, Another thing, Kathy mentioned oral histories, and I've uh, participated. I've got a historian colleague from Creighton, Dr. Heather Fryer, who has done uh, three long preliminary oral history interviews with me, and we're working on Uh, doing a final one that hopefully will be shared uh, through one or more archives. So maybe that legacy leaving can extend a little bit beyond my family. Thank you so much, Chad. And on my end, the tears have started a little bit because I've been postponing doing my legacy leaving because it just feels like it's admitting how far into this we are. So know, my dearie, that I will get you something. Kathy, is there something else that you would add about the process of legacy leaving in general? Um, not a lot. I, what I've really, what has meant a lot to me is how Chad has reached out so widely to his community to contribute to this And also, you know, speaking as a friend to sometimes share some of those uh, messages ahead of time. So, you know, I, I felt honored that when he recorded Charlotte's Web, he sent me some chapters just so I could hear them. And uh, it was, that was really meaningful. And he's also sent along some of the messages he's received from 
old students and such. Um, and I think it's, it's a way of building, building a web of, uh, of meaning and of relationships that have been so constructive in making Chad who he is and part of the community that he's part of. And I guess the, the other thing I would add uh, before we move on to, to the idea of memoir is that there's overlap between these two. So his messages can feed into a memoir or the oral history. I've listened to the oral history portions he's recorded so far, and those feed into memoir. And speaking from my own life, my parents, uh, after they retired, they were, they were both writers, they're both journalists, and they decided it was important for their daughters to all have uh, their memories of their childhoods. And so they each wrote many, many page uh, documents that sort of talked about, here's what I thought of as a child, and here's what I went through, and we did this, and we did that, and we would play in this way, and we ate this. And it was wonderful to have that, but then when I was writing a book about my father, uh, the nonfiction book about his experience during World War II, I was able to use not just his letters that he wrote home during World War II, but also all of his memories of his early years. And then I've also done the same in my fiction where I've you know, based characters on my mom. So there's often, as Chad was pointing out, there's both a wider audience, perhaps through uh, the oral history, but also in the way that all narratives get transformed over time and into different forms. Thank you for expanding on that. And like Kathy said, we're now going to turn to their joint project of um, memoir writing for, like Kathy said, that would be for larger audiences in narrative form um, that Chad and Kathy are co-constructing. And so I guess whoever wants to talk first, let's talk about, start with how that project is coming along. So actually, Kathy, um, at a conference, maybe uh, four years ago, um, yeah. first uh, approached me about writing a memoir. We were connecting over uh, a drink and I was telling her about Jackson's adoption story and some of my history with my family in Texas and their resistance um, or denial about my sexuality um, and my relationship. And she said at the time that, that my story is both ordinary and extraordinary and really pushed me to think about uh, writing it. And I tried a little bit at the time, but honestly, it was really difficult. I... Um, you know, I've been an academic writer for 20 years, and it was hard to let go of that way of writing. Uh, but one of the first things when <clears throat> I got this diagnosis, or maybe even before I officially had the second opinion, I texted Kathy and said, I think I'm ready to do this, and I need help. So... She has graciously spent hours and hours and hours uh, listening to my stories, uh, giving me feedback on writing, helping me find a voice. Um, and uh, we're uh, kind of into that process now. So I'd like to have you take it from there. Sure. Um What's interesting about this memoir, one thing is the form that we're trying to use with it, because Chad had such, his whole life has been such a story of uh, both great joys in his life with Alan and their life with Jackson, but also a great deal of pain as he sort of has dealt with family losses over the years. Um, I mean, that's 
obviously the first story that I thought of years ago over that drink at a conference. But when he also has a diagnosis of ALS and is experiencing living with the initial phases of that diagnosis in a pandemic, obviously that complicates and really amplifies and, you know, really makes the story of other parts of his life really resonate more. And so what we're trying to do is to do what we call a braided memoir, where there is both the story of ALS, um, but the major story, the major portion of the narrative is looking at uh, his journey from when he was a a little boy in a very close-knit, conservative uh, family in Texas through uh, experiences of leaving home, uh, coming to terms with his sexuality, trying to share his life with uh, his family, and then having them uh, first, first struggle with it and then deny it and eventually pretty much reject it. But then the also part, also the part of the joy of uh, connecting with Alan and their amazing journey to uh, adopt Jackson. So we're calling it at least tentatively "Family Lost, Family Found," because that foregrounds the stories of family that uh, are really central to Chad's life, and then weaving in aspects of his current life with ALS uh, as, as we tell that story. Um, in terms of the process we've been doing, we're trying to use whatever, uh, whatever procedures work best for trying to put the story together. So on some things, at least at first, then Chad was able to type really easily. So he would, he would actually do the writing and I would just try to you know, uh, make it a little more narrative, make it a little more voicey, as uh, as writers say. You know, trying to restructure it so uh, the facts and the incidents that he's discussing uh, might resonate with readers a little bit more. Um, since writing or since typing has become a little more difficult for Chad, uh, we've tried some other processes as well. Uh, we've just sat on Zoom together, and he's told me stories of his childhood, uh, and I will go through those, and then I will say, okay, we need another call, and I will ask more questions about that. So things like, so what did Mima do in this case? Or when you had that experience of uh, in church, what did it feel like? What was the temperature like? What was What were your sisters doing? Things like that. Um, and then I could take, uh, you know, 20 or 30 pages of single space stories and try to transform those into, again, sort of a, a narrative that, that uh, makes it a little more accessible and vivid for readers. Um, and so we're sort of experimenting with, with how we do that. But uh, it's been, and then we, we just keep going back and forth, uh, comparing drafts and things like that. But it's been so rewarding for me to hear the stories. And then occasionally I'm as a writer of creative nonfiction, I also tend to uh, sometimes go down rabbit holes uh, doing research that will supplement the story itself. So um, I spent way too much time, I think, looking at uh, his parents' high school yearbooks on classmates.com. But it's those kinds of things, those little pieces of the environment that can really make a story come to life in ways you don't realize. So that's, that's how we've been doing it. And it's been interesting, you know, there are parts of my life and story that Kathy probably knows better than anyone at this point, other than the people who were living with me at the time. But, you know, I've shared uh, the second chapter, which was, about my Texas childhood up through like middle school with a few of my really good close friends. And overwhelmingly, they've uh, been compelled by the narrative that Kathy has helped me craft 
But also, they've all said, we had no idea. We never heard these stories. And, you know, it's it's something that I take for granted. It's my life. But it's exactly the kind of stories that I wanted to document and have written down for uh, people so that I'm when I can't tell them myself. Thank you for sharing that for both of you. And I was one of the people that read that chapter and I wouldn't have known that that Chad hadn't wrote it. That's the beautiful, I can't describe how watching this from the outside, how cool it is to see these two friends doing this memoir writing to leave such an important thing behind, like Chad said, of stories that we had never heard. Even when Kathy just used the word Mima, I found myself smiling because like, Mima and Papa are not words that we used in my house, but those are that's Chad's grandparents. And so like just to to feel him in those words. And so um I guess like let's expand on that for just a minute. How has this deepened your relationship to do this together? And Kathy, why don't you go ahead and start? Sure. Well, uh I have not been uh as lucky as you have, Erica, to have known Chad for uh, as many years. Um, I think we got to know each other, you know, certainly in the last decade and especially in the last, uh, five or six years. And I've, I've, I felt when I, when I met Chad, I felt an immediate closeness to him. I knew we would be good friends, but doing this project together has made, I, I, for me, it is, uh, really deepened our relationship in that I, I feel like uh, he's able to share things with me that uh, that he wouldn't have a few years ago, um, and I and I hope that he's uh, he's realizing what what that means to me and how how it's so incredibly important to me that he trusts me with his stories because for me that's that's the biggest trust in the world I have someone you can you can share these intimate moments of your life with um even if it's across zoom or even if it's in a word document uh it's a way of of sharing the essence of who you are and and that's that it's been it's it's been really such an honor and uh a bittersweet pleasure to to be part of that with chad Thank you so much. Chad, what are a few of your reflections on the changing nature or deepening nature of your relationship through this process? I feel like Kathy really captured it. Um, And to be honest, it's a little hard for me to process it being an honor for her to do it. I I get it, but it it intellectually, (laughs) but it also feels uh, pretty (laughs) self-indulgent. to be honest, on my end. And, you know, we uh, we do Zoom at least once every week, but usually more um, text uh, way more often than probably she, she would wish. Um, and she hears not only the uh, stories that, you know, from my past, but she also... <laughs> Here's uh, some of the gruesome details of what I'm going through and the ups and downs of my week. <laughs> um, and I would say the ups and downs, like one of the things that I've learned is uh, with ALS, like the ups and downs occur every hour. So there can be a high and then a new low, you know, uh, with some struggle or challenge that breaks me down into tears. So uh, she is one of the people that are, is getting a real-time first-hand account of that. And as someone who studies relationships, I mean, I talk with my students about <laughs> you can't be in a relationship, a closer relationship, without talking. And if you talk and share, you can't help but be in a closer relationship. So it's a circular thing. And I feel like uh, Kathy and mine's relationship is 
a microcosm of that. We are definitely uh, sharing that. And I hope that it's not one-sided. So I also have learned a lot more about her writing process and her week um, and her daughter Kalena's uh, life and experiences. And and so that's been really rewarding for me too, especially in the middle of pandemic when we don't get to see the people we love uh, and talk with as much as we would like. Yeah, I'd like to add a couple more things. One is that Chad, I, I absolutely, he hears my, the stories of my everyday life. And he's also been an amazing reader for me on fiction projects. So um, I've written a couple of novels, uh, neither published yet, but who knows. Um, and he's been one of my beta readers who has given me such great feedback about, oh, I love this or... I really felt this or you could work on this. And so that's been, that's been a a really uh, great benefit for me in in our relationship, but also, and and this is kind of funny is that we, the two of us, I think we go meta a lot on Chad's life now in that something will happen to him. Um, So for example, he's uh, they're selling their home to move into a new one and, you know, there were details of the offer and how that whole thing happened. Um, and it worked out really well. And uh, we both had the reaction like, oh, that's going to be so good in the memoir. That's going to be such a good part of our of the story. <laughs> um, and so that's it, it. He very often will text me even when something really bad happens. It's like, okay, well, at least it'll be okay for the memoir. At least we got that. So you always see an advantage to uh, to the, the story value of some sometimes pretty lousy things you're going through. That's true. I had never, I mean, I, I guess I know, but I never thought of it in a more bird's eye view, like we're talking now, but it really is a benefit of when something really crappy happens, uh, like it does, you know, sadly most days. But <clears throat> I will think, well, that's shitty, but it'll be a good story. So it really does help me kind of process and have perspective. So, well, thank you both for sharing about that sort of the way this has um, even deepened your relationship further. And I'm going to actually now kind of go to the academic side of relationships because Chad, you're a scholar of families and relationships. And I wanted to ask what nuggets of wisdom about family or interpersonal communication have you mined from your experience to this point? Wow. Um, I would say one of the things that it has brought to mind, I've always talked with my students about part of what I think makes us human is not just the ability to communicate, but um, our relationships. And I always tell them in my intro interpersonal class that, you know, if we are (laughs) lucky, we come into this world holding someone's hand and uh, feel love and excitement that people had when we were born. And if we're lucky, we also have that experience when we leave Earth, Uh, you know, that hopefully we're with loved ones and can exit in the same way. And one of the through lines of The human experience for me is uh, our relationships, (laughs) and that doesn't mean they're easy. So family can be very rewarding, and certainly friendships and (laughs) other relationships, uh, but they can also be really challenging. And receiving a diagnosis like this really just amplifies it. And it's made my um, academic work and 
discussion with students more urgent. So I feel like I have disclosed more in my classes than I normally would about myself. <laughs> um, so my students certainly don't know about the hourly ups and downs that Kathy and other close friends here, um, but they do know about my diagnosis. Uh, they do know about struggles. They hear about uh, my family, about me maybe being uh, slower with responding or uh, when I'm dictating an email, maybe it's more jumbled. And uh, one of the things I've realized is it um, makes me more human with them. And I also feel like my students in turn have then also felt like they could be more vulnerable with me as well. And it's really uh, deepened uh, those relationships, not obviously to the same extent, but it's reinforced me about uh, how lucky and fortuitous I was to stumble on onto this career and area of study that I do think it is it's bigger than us and uh, important so. Thank you, Chad. That was really um, impactful. And I can say that my daughter, my daughter Sam is in Chad's class right now. And um, I'm certain that she would attest that that your vulnerability has really spoken to students. And so thank you for doing that. And Kathy, I know you call yourself a recovering academic, but I'm going to ask you the same question. What nuggets of wisdom about health or family or organizational communication have you mined from this experience? Uh, well, several, probably more, uh, I don't less, less meaningful in terms of the classroom and more looking at how far have we come in our understanding of these things. One thing that has uh, occurred to me as I hear Chad's story of his diagnosis is that for the decades we've uh, been writing in health communication anyways about the importance of empathic and reflective uh, physician-patient communication, oh my goodness, we still have a long way to go, uh, particularly when we're talking about sharing news about difficult diagnoses. Uh, because although Chad has had really good clinicians and really uh, insightful interactions that have helped him, he has also been floored with doctors who don't know how to deal with bad news, who don't know how to connect with their patient on a human level. And it just seems we should be farther than that by now. Um a second thing, sort of for more my organizational background, is listening to Chad talk about all of the systems that are in place for his care, his um, the sets of, of uh, people in therapy and different clinical specialties and people providing uh, resources through the community, all of those things. It's like really appreciating how a diagnosis like this mobilizes a network, both of personal contacts, but also of a professional community that has now, that has learned over the years what patients need in various situations. And uh, I think that's been really impressive. Um, and then the third thing, the part of my research over time that dealt with family communication was actually spurred on by my own personal experiences as a family caregiver. I was the uh, in-town caregiver for my parents uh, for the last uh, for the last seven years or so of my mom's life. Actually, my my one sister uh, was in town for uh, for the last last year and a half, I think. But anyways, for for a long period at the end of their lives, uh, I was doing a lot of caregiving for, for my parents. And it made me realize at that time how much I wanted to understand 
the role of family in providing care uh, for both just sort of uh, regular errands and things like that, but also for the really intense experiences when, when health is a real problem. And I learned a lot about that uh, and I reflected on it in my own life. And I'm seeing that now in Chad's life, both especially in terms of Alan, who I can tell from a distance is the most phenomenal caregiver, uh, or at least among them that I've I've ever known, uh, just really uh, learning in a very short period of time all the ways that he can help Chad be as successful in his own life as possible. And also from the network around Chad in terms of his friends who will, you know, pick him up when he needs it or do this, you know, bring him food or help him in his classes or what, whatever he needs. And just really realizing the old, the old adage of, you know, it takes a village and seeing that there in Omaha and with his Creighton colleagues and with his, with Alan and with uh, Alan's family in town, Chad has an amazing village uh, moving forward. And, you know, I, I think that's, that should be meaningful for anyone who cares about knowing more about the intersection of a family and health. It's really, it's really an amazing situation. And I would add to that. So in the uh, family communication subdiscipline, there's a concept called discourse dependent families or chosen families, fictive kin. So the people um, who we surround ourselves with <laughs> and I think this diagnosis has really brought that home personally to me. So I hope I've invested in uh, others' lives. Um, <clears throat> but definitely, I feel that investment back. And even though I don't have the relationship with my family of origin that I might wish, I have a large, large, large extended network. <laughs> and as Kathy described, that I would not just consider friend or, friends or colleagues, but they are my family uh, beyond uh, Alan and Jackson. So. And, and I think, you know, that's a whole, that's a big part of how we came to our tentative title of Family Lost, Family Found. It's not just about Chad finding, so to speak, Alan, and then them finding Jackson, so to speak. But it's also about his larger found family among colleagues, among friends, among community members of his in his church. Uh, all of those people are part of his found family as well. Thank you both for that. And uh, Chad is part of your found family. Yes, you do invest in people as much as they invest in you. And I just want to say that for the record that lots of people are going to hear. Chad, is there any additional advice you would offer for those living with, um, I know what your therapist has helped you reframe as a life-limiting disease? Yeah. Um, so when I found this therapist, I was using the term terminal diagnosis, but <laughs> she um helped me reframe that as life-limiting in the sense that uh, the quantity of my life, uh, the years that I have left, um, will be much shorter than, you know, I or one hopes for yourself or that I hoped. Um, the time with Alan and Jackson and my friends will be limited. Um, but the other kind of um, crappy thing about uh, ALS is even while I'm here physically, my life will be limited in qualitative ways. So <laughs> right now I'm experiencing a lot of mobility issues and frustrations about things that I can't do that I would like to do. So just yesterday, we were trying to teach Jackson to play Uno, and it was super fun. And part of me 
was frustrated that I couldn't hold the cards or uh, do those things. But, you know, I found the gift in being able to share that time with him and uh, let teach him, hopefully, the benefits of helping and thinking about others. And, you know, so it's uh, life limiting in those ways as well. And that's only going to get worse. So uh, when I am unable to speak and have to rely on technology uh, to do so, um, you know, that's going to limit my life in other ways. Um, But I'm also very lucky and fortunate, uh, certainly not to have this diagnosis. I don't want to be one of those. I'm not one of those people that I'm not lucky that I am living with this, but I'm lucky that I've gotten it at this point in time when there is so much technology where I can still engage with students. Um, I'll still be able to communicate in a different way with my friends and with Jackson. And, but it won't be the way that I would prefer to. So, Thank you so much. Chad or Kathy, are there other things that you wanted to talk about that I did not ask about? Not really. I, I will say it's been a real pleasure and honor to be part of this conversation. Um, it, it means a lot to me. So I'd just like to thank all of you for uh, letting me letting me into this. I just wanted to say thanks for providing this space uh, to share about some of uh, my experiences individually and with Alan Jackson, but also about my process with Kathy. My thanks to Dr. Chad McBride and Dr. Kathy Miller for joining me today and to Dr. Lynn Harder and the staff of Defining Moments for inviting me to be a guest host. This project is very important to all three of us. We hope it serves as another piece of Chad's legacy. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR podcast directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DMPodcastWOUB. On our Facebook page, we will provide a link to the article about Chad in Psychology Today. We hope you will take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Go forth to be a radically flourishing human being and stay safe.